about more than just research. It's about community, too, right? See you in the community. What's going on this weekend? The last time we met, we talked to... Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new with... Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk with. Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host, Miguel Valdez. And today, we're here for a treat with Dr. John Kerstetter. 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 That's right. John, Dr. Thank you for agreeing to be part of this podcast today. Yeah. Thanks for having me here. Where are you visiting us from today? Well, I'm from Iowa right now. I live in Iowa City with my family there. Originally, I'm from the Oneida Indian Reservation in Green Bay, Wisconsin, not too far from here. How was your growing up in a reservation? Well, it was interesting. Um, when I grew up, so I, I was born in 1950. And uh, my mother had three children. She was alone. She was a single parent. And uh, we had nothing on, on uh, the reservation. What is the closest major city so people can figure out oh, Wisconsin? Oh, sure. That's easy. Uh, well, the Oneida Indian Reservation is right next to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Okay. Right next to it. In fact, the airport property is, is part of it. It's on the Indian Reservation. So as I was saying, when when, uh, when I grew up, and I had a one older brother, one older sister, and my mother lived in an apartment house above a, uh, they used to call it a drugstore, but it wasn't really a drugstore like we know it today. It was a sundry store, so they had some aspirin, Tylenol, bandages, this kind of thing, and old-fashioned uh, pharmacy recipes that they could mix and use up. She wasn't a pharmacist. Uh, and she had basic skills. She went to the sixth grade. So she raised her family right there. And she finally decided when, when I was uh, four years old, she had to leave the reservation and, and go somewhere where she can get a job. Her whole purpose in living at that point was survival. She had to work to provide for her children and protect her children. So that's what she did. She moved from the reservation. Uh, and took us out west. She got a job in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, quote, Indian school, and she served in the food service line and uh, mopped the floors, 75 cents an hour. That was 1955. Doctor, question. How did she end it in that reservation? Did she grow up in? She grew up there. Her father, the history of the Oneida tribe is such that they started out in upstate New York and Canada. And in, in the early tribal history, uh, the United States government decided it'd be better to split tribes up, send them to reservation systems. They weren't originally on reservations, that's just where they mm -hmm. lived in New York. Well, half of our tribe went to, quote, Oneida, Wisconsin to live at a reservation. The other half stayed in Oneida, New York. And if you look today on a map, you'll see both Oneidas there. My grandfather was one of those first transplants into Wisconsin from New York. He spoke no English. He, uh, he went to Carlisle Indian Industrial School when he was 18 years old, and he was assigned to the second grade. That was in 1885. 
And they told him he wasn't worth much. In fact, he had a, he was supposed to be there five years. He only lasted one year. Yeah, you shared yeah, the conversation, yeah, yeah. a document exactly. that you did mm -hmm. some research. If if you're if Can you you yeah, if your listeners look up my grandfather's name's Levi Elm, L-E-V-I. His last name's Elm, like the Elm Tree, E-L-M. If you Google it and Google Carlisle Industrial Indian School, you'll find his school records there. It's fascinating. So, and it and it tells you all this. He was assigned to second grade at age 18. He's supposed to be there five years and become a brickyard worker. And apparently, either he's he's stubborn, or and he, we know he didn't speak English, or both. And they tried to teach him, and they decide before the end of the year to get rid of him. And they they said reason for discharge from the school, worthless. So they decide he was worthless. So he goes back, becomes a farmer and a lumberjack and grows his family on the reservation, but he has this one thing, he's a survivor. That's what he is. So he taught my mom the same basic survival skills. She had to survive. So she made a choice when, when myself, I had brother and sister, said the only way she was gonna survive and protect her kids and provide was to get off of the reservation that her family had been sent to and get a job somewhere. Now, she had no skills. She herself went to a boarding school. Uh, it, was a, it was a mission boarding school run by the Norwegian, uh, Norwegian Lutherans. She got as far as sixth grade, and she was trained in domestic skills, so ironing, cleaning, you know, serving food, those kind of mm -hmm. things. Well, she found a job in a Bureau of Indian Affairs Indian school in Brigham City, Utah. It was a school that That's a long transition. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, and she knows nobody. She has no friends. She's got nothing. No money. Her friends gave her a couple hundred bucks, and she got four suitcases. And I remember going with her the first day on, out on the train. We uh, get a bus to uh, Chicago. Mm -hmm. and from Chicago, get on the train, go to Utah. She, somebody, somewhere in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, said there's a job for you there, if you can make it that far, that pays 75 cents an hour, plus you have, what, a government job, okay? But you gotta scrub floors, you gotta serve food all day long. That's it. No promise of anything further, that's it. So that's what she did. She'd take all the kids out there alone. And that school, uh, it became an Indian school, but before that, it was the site of the Bushnell Army Hospital. It was the first, it was one of two hospitals in the United States that gave soldiers penicillin for infections. And then when we were done with World War II in Korea, then they transitioned those buildings that were left and they gave it to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and they made it the Indian school from it. So it was not a reservation? It no, was no, it was not a reservation, not at Brigham City. And the students came, uh, there were Navajo and Hopi students that came from New Mexico and Arizona. Yeah, there's yeah. some Hopis yeah. in, in Mexico mm -hmm. too. Yep. Those students uh, used to be bused in, literally on Greyhound buses, at the beginning of the school year, you know, in late August. They would stay all year long, they don't go home. In the early part of the summer, they go back to the reservation on buses, and this will happen every year. They started when the students were approximately in the sixth grade, all the way through high school. You addressed during your presentation 
what was the purpose of those schools to make those individuals work? Yeah, the, 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 and these, these schools were, were nationwide. There were several of them. Most of them were, were smaller on scale. The purpose was this. It was to literally remove the Indian culture from the Indian students and replace that. And, and some of the research and texts you can find will say our purpose in doing that was to modernize, civilize, and Christianize these kids. It's interesting because I, I also read from one of the research documents about my own mother's school and, and one of the founders of that mission boarding school said, said this comment, I loosely paraphrase it, that it's gonna be a most difficult thing to do because the Indian people are always hiding in the woods. <laughs> and they don't come out and they don't wanna change. Well, guess what? Now I'm a physician. I graduated medical school at the Mayo Clinic. I've been all over the world practicing medicine retired as a colonel of the United States Army as a physician. We're out of the woods. <laughs> we have changed and we participate in, in the greater dream of society. And what I'm about doing now really is, is legacy formation. That is, everything I've done, everything I've learned, I want to teach people about change, about cultural change, how it happens, what the transition be so that never again somebody's going to claim that, hey, this person from a different culture, brown skin, you know, black skin, purple skin, green skin, doesn't matter, they're worthless. That's not true. That's a lie. Nobody's worthless. And everything I'm doing now in terms of legacy formation is simply that, leaving people with the wonderful and beautiful idea that you're not trapped by a culture and a culture can't necessarily define you. You yourself are in the process of defining culture as you move along. I like the way you addressed it, um, crossing those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And sometimes boundaries are set by society. Sure, sure. Within your own, your own family, your own well, environment. And like you said, you're individual. You're yeah, you're exactly right. Now, I, I was giving this talk at lunch, and afterwards, uh, a young woman comes up to me. She's from Argentina. She's a molecular biologist. Come on. What, who would have thought of that 50 years ago? I said this is impossible 50 years ago. She said, absolutely right. But today, it's possible because I challenged that boundary that said, who from Argentina is going to become molecular biologist? She is. A woman. Yeah. A woman. Yeah. How about a challenge? Wow. Now, let's take my example. When I was young, my mother, again, educated to the level of sixth grade. She wasn't very fancy. She was 75 cents an hour. And even in the 1950 scale, and not a lot of money. Come on. Churches used to come to our house and bring food for Thanksgiving and mm -hmm. Christmas time very poor. We didn't even have indoor plumbing in our house. We had to go an outhouse outside. All right? Nothing. She got nothing. She would grab me and say, you've got to get an education. You can't be like me. Now, here's what she meant by that. Education for my mother was join the army, get a skill, work real hard. You come out and you work in the skill that you got in the army. That was my brother. His, that's what he did. 
Okay? Well, that's what you're going to do because that's what Indian people do. We don't go to college. She had no idea I could do that. But early on, I, I, I said, no, Mom, I want to be a doctor. She said, I don't know nothing about that. You have to talk to some other people. Well, I talked to my friends, the non-Indian friends. Their dads weren't doctors either. They had no clue. Most of their dads didn't go to college either. So I got in a little late, a little late start. But eventually, I got to this proposition that's this. You come up across a cultural boundary that's either set by your own family out of misunderstanding. They, they had every good intention when they said you got to get educated. They just didn't know what the vision of that was yet. Sometimes families say, well, we don't do this. You can't do that. Our, quote, people don't do this. We're not prepared. We're not, we're laborer kind of people. That's not for us. Yeah, that's not for us. That's for those other people. Or math is too hard. We don't do science. We don't do college. Now, here's another case in point. When I get to college, I have an advisor, and he says, uh, uh, a Native American advisor, a Navajo with a master's degree in social work, he sits me down at a table to advise me on my curriculum and my, you know, I checked off, I want to be pre-med. He looks at my paperwork, first week of college, he said, we Indians don't do the hard sciences. We do better in education and social work. I was stunned. Now, for him, what I was trying to do was a violation of a cultural boundary that he himself as a Native American had set. And somebody told him, we don't do math, we don't do hard was science. Was he doing it to protect you? Yes, that's the idea. He was trying to say, look, I'm going to save you a lot of pain <laughs> and a lot of frustration. It would be better for you. You'll have more likelihood of success if you go into this education. So even though his motive was good, his understanding was not, or his vision was not. He was operating out of the same cultural boundary that had been told to him and perpetuated through the ages. And that's, I guess, one thing I write about, I write this book, Crossings, that's exactly the point. Everybody, whether you come from a brown culture, a black culture, a white culture, doesn't matter what the color is. What matters is sometimes the cultures dictate to you what you should and shouldn't be. My point is, I dictate to the culture what I'm going to be. That's not easy. And you're going to, you know. How long it took you? <laughs> well, I, when I finally a, got to. have yeah, a really yeah. nice journey. Yeah, when I finally got. So I, I went into medical school. I went into the college, and, of course, I struggled. Then, of course. This is before the Army? Before the Army, yes. Before okay. All this stuff, kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, and I struggled because I didn't do math very well. But I didn't, I didn't know enough about resources to go get tutors and this and that. And I struggled. And the more I struggled, the more I thought, maybe they're right. So I changed my major. I became, you know, business major. I got married. I had to, I had to survive. I had to provide for my family. So I said, I'll, I'll get a business degree and go out and work. I did that. And I came back later, and I got a master's degree. I came back much later. At age 34, I finally believed in myself enough to apply and get into medical school at Mayo. So I was 34. So you always been thinking about Yeah, always, always, always. My first job out of college, I went to work for IBM. 
and they would say every six months you had to write a business plan and put all your goals, personal goals, business goals, family goals, even spiritual goals. Everything was a goal. Goals, resources, strategies. How are you going to do what you want to do in life? Uh, every year I put, every six months I put on there, I want to become a doctor. Well, then I got to turn it in, right? So I got to race that. So you can, I can't show them, you know, what, what's going on here. Well, after three years of that, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Keeps coming up. The dream is still alive. Then I did what they taught me. See, how is, how IBM is so far from Native American culture, it's ridiculous. They're, they're not even on the same planet. Three-piece suit, hello. <laughs> Come on. But what did I learn from the IBM culture? Strategy, planning, resources. It's part and parcel of everything they are. It's why they're successful. And I said, I can use that. And I did become very successful at IBM. But more importantly, it challenged me to become successful in my life. And I said, if I want to be a doctor, how can I do it? Step one, go back and do all the things that I was told I couldn't do, the hard sciences. So I enrolled in a PhD program in business psychology at University of Minnesota. While I was doing that, I took biochemistry, math, physics, all the requirements, and guess what? Well, I had a different attitude, and instead of struggling, I got A's. How is it possible? You change your mind about the subject material, you ask a lot of questions about things you don't understand, and you read and study with intensity. That's how it happens. So I did that, prepared myself, and then the strategy was interview a lot of medical schools. I only interviewed three, came to Mayo. It was interesting because the deans who interviewed me said, what's unique about my application is that I've done several different things, but they saw kind of a personal resilience that I didn't say no, I just kept going. Now, it took me a while to get there, and I was 34 when I came in the doors at the Mayo Clinic, 10 years, at least 10 years older than most students. But I finished in good stead, so I graduated medical school 38 years old. One question that came out during your presentation and uh, the way that you responded um, really impressed me. When somebody asks you, why do you enlist mm -hmm. to the forces? To the I joined the Army National Guard and uh, I was um, 42, 1992. That's, that's an old man to be joining the Army, right? And they welcome you, no, no Yeah, problem? well, I had to have an age waiver. <laughs> <laughs> I was a physician at the time. Okay. So they needed doctors in the Army. It was the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. And they were so slow, by the time they finished all the application, the war was over. But I still had an interest. Where does that interest come from? When my mother moved us from the reservation to Brigham City, Utah at the Indian School, when I was in the sixth grade, she decided she was gonna try one more time to make a, make a go of it, make a living back on the reservation. So she took me and my brother, we went back, and uh, she had to Wisconsin? Yeah, well, yeah, Oneida, Wisconsin, on the reservation. She had a very difficult time. We ended up living in a rented, uh, burned-out cheese factory. Again, no electricity, no plumbing. It's like squatters, all right? And uh, a lot of people in the tribe came to help, old men, young men, just people, tribal members. Community. The community, yeah. yes. Coming to help this poor woman with a couple kids. She's no job. What are we going to do? 
same thing. Well, they helped. They built an outhouse. We got some chickens. <laughs> you know, and I, I was in charge of chickens and all that. So on the 4th of July, she decided to have a picnic, a thank you picnic and a party for all the helpers. And she spread the word through the tribe, you know, just word of mouth, okay? So everybody shows up about noon. They keep coming at 2, 3 o'clock. This goes on till the evening, late evening. After dinner, one of the elders actually was a healer. He, he said, I want to have a special ceremony. He calls it the naming ceremony. And they were telling stories about tribal history. And he got to the part of history where men in the tribe served in the U.S. military and died overseas. And he started naming all these men, World War II, Korean War. He went down a list, and there was a lot of people on that list. And every time he hit a name, somebody in that group would weep and cry for somebody lost. And he, he hit the name of, a, of the friend of my mother, my mother's dearest friend, who if he had come back from Korea, he, they were going to be married. He died in Korea. The elder read that name. She wept. And everybody was weeping. And I, I, I looked at that, and I said, this amazing, how close these people are. And after 10 minutes, they were all laughing and rejoicing that they were together. They had remembered the warriors of the tribe. Now, my, if you go to the cemetery in my tribe, you'll find about 75%, 70 to 75% of all the men's graves are all veterans. Why is that? We're a group of warriors. We have the warrior spirit. That impressed me so much as a young man. I looked at that and I said, I got to be a warrior someday. Because look at the respect and the honor these mm -hmm. tribal people give. Politics aside, doesn't matter. These were men who were going to stand up. Their country was their reservation. They were fighting for their people and their reservation. And they all did it. And they died in service over their country. So I said, I've got to do that someday. That's why. Doctor, all this part of um, resiliency, how do you... In your experience, have you seen resiliency in in the on the tribes and the reservation when a researcher team comes trying to work and they do some research work mm -hmm. and they don't give back to the community? Mm -hmm. How the community reacts? There's there's two parts to resiliency. One is the, the tribe collectively has to survive through time. And how they do that is, is tribal leadership has to interface with, with the national leadership and the government leadership. And they get funds for X, Y, and Z, for housing, for health care, for child care, for whatever. And education is one of those. Now, a person like myself comes along and my mother says, we got to leave the tribe to survive, to be resilient enough to survive every day. We gotta leave and go away. In a sense, kind of leaving that culture behind, yet in another sense, you take that culture with you. My mother never stopped being an Indian person. She actually never stopped speaking the Indian language. And then it comes my turn. Now what do I do? To be a Native American, to have my own personal resiliency my own survival strategy, if you will. Do I go back to the tribe and stay there and live there? If so, what do I become? 
They don't have a tribal medical school. They don't have a tribal law school. They don't have a school of social work or engineering or biochemistry. If I want to be a doctor, if I want to be in the military, I, like my mother, even like my grandfather, if you'll remember, I have to leave the community of the tribe and I have to interface with the larger American community. I have to interface with the military community, the community at Mayo, who has its own culture. I become, in a sense, a person with multiple cultures, and I blend those, and I marriage one to the other. Now, when that's done, I have a lot more opportunity to go back to the tribe, to share, to challenge, to teach, especially young people, to say, you know what? When I was your age, I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think I could do math. Hard sciences weren't a thing that Indian people could do. Guess what? That's a lie. It's not true. Look, we did that. We come out of the woods. We're not in the woods anymore. And the more I can do that as, as now, sort of a multicultural professional, not in terms of strict ethnicity, but in the true sense of lots of different cultures, everything from IBM to Mayo to the Army to the tribe. I blend those, and those are what make me who I am today. That's all about resiliency. And I take the beauty and the strength of all those different cultures, bound them up into one. That's who I am, and that's the legacy I want to leave, is that we're not just one thing. Our identity is more than either the color of our skin or the place of our origin. It's everything we do everything we talk about. This ultimately, what we're doing today, becomes part of my legacy, part of my culture, if you will, being able to share these concepts with other people. Also, you have a different level. You have a rich and different level of resi resiliency because you had a cardiovascular accident. Yeah. Would yeah, you I share did. a little bit? Sure. How sure. that changed everything? Yep. But you're here yep. again. I had a cardiovascular accident, a stroke, 10 years ago, exactly this summer. What is a stroke for somebody who's not familiar with this? A, a stroke is a blockage of the blood flow in the brain. It's kind of like a heart attack, only it's in the brain. There's not, no blood flow. So with either a clot or air or bleeding vessel, it damages the brain. The brain dies and can no longer function. That, and that's why you see, when you see stroke, people think of, oh, well, grandma can't walk anymore and she can't talk. So some people can survive, some people can Some people die. don't survive and some people, the survivors of the stroke like myself, have a tremendous challenge. And here's part of personal resiliency and I, I call it actually the personal culture of rehabilitation. Everybody has a culture of rehabilitation and it goes like this. Will I allow myself to participate in everything I need to do to get as much rehabilitation as I need to get. Now, if the answer is yes, then you go full steam ahead and you challenge your body, your mind, <laughs> reading, thinking, walking, eating, everything is challenged. You don't have a guarantee on how it's gonna turn out. You could work as hard as you can for three or four years and have very little change. You can work as hard as you can for three or four years like I did and actually for 10 years, and you can have a lot of change. In fact, a lot of people now talk to me, they say, it, it doesn't look like you had a stroke. Well, if you talk to me very long, you'd notice. I've, <laughs> you talk to my wife, she'll tell you. <laughs> but here's the deal. 
I had a stroke, it, it literally took away my medical career, everything that I had. I went from reading and thinking as a physician all the way down to the third grade level. Third grade, we're talking I can't read, I can't write, I can't think, I can't make decisions, I don't know how to order things, I forget all my medical knowledge, it's gone, poof, just like that. I have a very difficult time walking, so we start retraining. Now, in one year, I went from the third percentile of reading and cognition, so 97% of adults in my age bracket at 55 to 57, 97% of all people could think better, read better, and understand better than I could. So I'm on the bottom. In the next year, I improved one. I went up to fourth percentile. By year five, I got back to reading level five, grade 5.3. So I went from bottom to grade 5.3 in about five years. That's pretty good. Well, it's not as good as a doctor, and it's, it's, but it's functional. A, a lot of literature we read today actually is written at fifth, sixth grade level. Mm -hmm. Hunger Games, the level of Hunger Games is level 5.3. And the reason I know I was at 5.3 was the first book I read I understood was Hunger Games. That's the level, 5.3, finally got there. Well now, we retested this last summer and after 10 full years of therapy, I'm at I'm about 70% in some areas, 30 in some. That's pretty good. So I started writing a book. I started in the throes of stroke and my the writing was terrible. You know, missing verbs. and. And what was your vision at the beginning of that book? Well, you know what it was? It was interesting. So the, the VA, the Veterans Administration, said we have to do some kind of vocational rehabilitation. We, you can't just sit here. I said, I know, but I, what am I going to do? I can't, I can't read. I can't, you know, I, practice. I, I can't practice medicine. The only thing I love is medicine. So we thought a long time, and we had some testing and stuff. I still can't read. They said, well, how about... What if you could learn to write and teach people everything you know? <laughs> I said, well, that'd be a lot of fun because I think I know a lot of things. I learned a lot of stuff. I got a lot of lessons, hard lessons. It'd be worth it, but uh, how are we going to do that? We found one school distance education uh, program, low residency MFA writing program in Ohio. We researched. I went there talked to the director, they said, we, we'll work with you, we'll try. All experiment, so we did it. Now, in the beginning, that first year of going to MFA program, it took me one week to do a one hour assignment. One week. The other students would do it, one hour gone, they're drinking beer, doing whatever mm -hmm. they're doing, uh, one week. Well, I had nothing but time, so why not? I began to write, rewrite, think, write, think, right three years what we found out kind of by accident that's exactly the kind of exercise my brain needed to lay new synapse synaptic formation they call it what does an injured brain need to do think it needs to rewire rewire so. everything so that's what happened so I rewrote the book I wrote this book it's got over 350 revisions and seven and a half years to write. So it's pretty polished. And it does talk about all these crossings and most importantly this resilience that you mentioned. 
So how do you take somebody who's lost everything they worked their whole life? Now you've got nothing. Well, you think you've got nothing, but you really don't. Because what you have is what I learned from my mother and my grandfather. The personal resilience of saying, even though you say I'm worthless, I'm not. Even though I think I'm worthless, I'm not. I can recover. I can gain ground. I can work. I can push. I can challenge boundaries. And all of this stuff's about boundary setting and then coming up to the boundary and saying, I will not be stopped. I'm going to go forward. I had to say that in every station of my life, whether it was education or medical school or Army. Stroke recovery, certainly. I had to say somewhere along the line, I have got to keep moving. And if I do, there, again, there's no guarantees of what I'm going to get in the end. But I know what I'll get if I don't try. Nothing. So I had to try. And that, I think, comes out of personal resilience and just being able to say, keep going. Keep going. What would you, a recommendation, a suggestion for a a researcher or institutions like universities or in this case Mayo Clinic or any other research mm -hmm. institution who wants to work with uh, a native community mm -hmm. what would it be your recommendation for them to approach a community who sure. so mm -hmm. has so much resilience but sometimes they have also bad experiences well here here's yeah it, there's two prongs to the Native American experience that, that I would focus on just now. One is resiliency. Yes, they're survivors. But two, uh, they also have a history, a, a tough history with government, so they're, they tend to be distrustful of government and institutions and corporations. Well, wh who runs large medicine in the country? You know, government and institutions and corporations, right? Well, how do you take that? It, it, well, take Indian Health Service as an example. If you were to tell my mother she's going to go to Indian Health Service, she just wouldn't go, period. She'd rather be sick. Where did she get her health care done? From country doctor, who had a good heart and a good mind, was a very simple doctor, nothing fancy. He'd come to your house, make a house call. And when I was little, he came and treated me with diphtheria, he'd give me a shot of penicillin right in my bedroom. So the thing that researchers or institutions have to look at in terms of especially Native, or Native communities is this idea of trust. First, before you give the shot, you get, have to gain the trust. Uh, before you teach uh, w women about screening mammography or self-breast exam or men about prostate exam or young kids about drinking and drugs, before you do any of that, what has to happen is a, is a kind of a bridge building between the two cultures because one culture can't go in immediately and say to the other, be like us. The, the native people will look at you and say, aha, you're trying to trick us again, see? So they have that. Now, that's part of their culture that they have to kind of get over it, of saying it, it might be okay to let these non-Indian doctors come in here and do their thing. They're trying to help. We can try to help them. Uh, so there's a bridge. You have to build a bridge. And it's that not might take long. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's not always easy, and it takes time. It, it can't be done tomorrow. And be, historically, it just can't be done tomorrow. You can't repair hundreds of years of mistreatment with an hour of good treatment. It just doesn't work that way. You kind of have to earn the right 
to treat the patient. You have to earn the right to treat any patient. It's just that in native populations, it's going to take a long, lot longer. Um, now, if you talk about tribes that still live on reservation systems, and some of those reservations are, are remote, take the Navajo and the Hopi reservation, for example, some of the reservations in Alaska, the Alaska native population. I worked at the Alaska Native uh, Hospital when I was a medical student and went back when I was a resident. Those are tough populations, really tricky. Why? Well, again, you can't erase history overnight, and, and there's a lot of misgiving and mistrust. So people that work in those systems have to understand, like I had to learn to understand, rehabilitation takes a long time, and that's essentially what you're talking about with those communities is rehabilitation of the entire community. When you take a young person and say, I want, to, I want to tell you not to drink or do drugs. Yeah, why do you want to do that? The only satisfaction I get right now is by drinking and drugs. I'm ill-equipped to challenge that young student if I don't know them, know what they're going through. Now, I'm a little better prepared than most because at least I, I share the same blood. But still, they can say, yeah, but you went over and you got that other education. You're not one of us anymore, see? And, and that becomes part of the mistrust paradigm that keeps minority and especially Native American populations from getting the good health care they deserve and are entitled to. That's a frustration. And again, no easy way to fix that. Mm -hmm. it, it, it takes research. It takes cultural uh, anthropologists, uh, people in social work, work as a team. You go in, but it also takes people in the Native American community, the leadership and the change agents who can come to the health system and say, we want to be a part of that change. Let us be on your team. You also, yeah, they totally, you totally talk about crossing those boundaries too mm -hmm. within generations. Oh, Even absolutely. Even you being yeah. Native American, yeah, sure. like you said, yeah. when that's uh, having mm -hmm. that new blood and way to thinking. Yeah, exactly. Opens. I, I'll give you a great example of that. Now, I'm talking about healthcare, and I, I think I know something of it because I'm a physician. I've been around a long time. I've learned a lot of things. So I'm, if you will, at least a subject matter expert in healthcare. Now, let's talk about art. I love Native American art. My house is full of it. I go to the uh, uh, Northern Plains Tribal Arts Fair every year in South Dakota. Beautiful, wonderful. They have two categories traditional and modern. I'm an art traditionalist, see? I don't think I'm setting a cultural boundary for artists. <laughs> I don't think they should go beyond, much beyond this, frame. this framework of what is Native American art. Now, I got a magazine in the mail about six months ago. It's a display of Native American artists who are fashion designers at the Smithsonian, and it blows me away. I'm going, wait a minute, stop, this is too far. When did Native American artists begin designing fashion? We don't do that. That's nuts. That's crazy. Hello. That's so like, we don't do the hard sciences, you know? We don't do fashion? Are you out of your mind? That's what they're doing. Now, why are they doing that? If you talk to them, they're going to tell you, we are challenging the norm that you set up. You, put a, you set up a cultural boundary of art. What is art to you? I come from Paris. See, I, yeah. and art to me is, is you, you strip the bark off a, off a tree and you make basket or pottery or you paint in, in the fashion of, of the older generation. 
all the new people challenging that. So, see, I'm speaking out both sides of my mouth now when I talk about art, see. But when I talk about medicine, I go, wait a minute, there are no boundaries. Aha, I have to face my own cultural uh, perspective and inhibitions. And I have to deal with it and say, well, wait a minute. Who am I to say what defines your culture? Now, some people will say, again, well, in order to be an Indian, you've got to go back to the reservation. Well, that's not true. I'm still an Indian. I still have same skin, same culture, same heritage. I don't live on a reservation. I went to the Mayo Clinic to medical school. I and other Native professionals like me challenge the norm. And what's interesting, over time, we, in effect, change the culture we come from. Now, it doesn't mean I go back and say history is not important and, and recognizing traditional ways is not important. What it does mean, though, is that I have to recognize that over time, all cultures change. And if I'm not part of the change, I'm probably not helping my culture. I need to bring, the value I bring to my culture now is my experience at IBM, what I learned in the Army, what I learned about war, what I learned about being a doctor at war, what I learned at the Mayo Clinic, what I learned about having a stroke. That's now part of who I am. And what it means is I, I can go back to any cultural group, my cultural group specifically, and say, it doesn't matter that your career has been destroyed by illness. Ultimately, that can be overcome. Now, of course, there's some hard boundaries. If, if, if you go to war and you lose two legs, I can't give you two natural legs, but I can give you two artificial ones. And I can't make you run a marathon with them, but if you put your mind to it, you could run a marathon. And I think, you know, I was, I was at my tribe a couple, uh, well, about a month ago, and I got an opportunity to, to meet with uh, my cousins and friends and uh, went to the nursing home. And uh, I met with uh, a family relatives who, in the nursing home, she has some memory loss issues. Uh, she's 95 years old. So the conversation was, was somewhat scattered. About halfway into it, she looks at me and she said, so you're Dr. Kerstetter. I know you. <laughs> it was an interesting and beautiful moment in a way because all, all the talking I did before then, I don't know if it registered or not, but we had that one moment where we had that clarity. common clarity, that, that common belonging, and all the other stuff didn't matter. So what mattered to her in that moment is what we had, the recognition of each other. And I think, we, especially look at us now in the nation, there's a lot of racial strife, cultural strife. Everywhere in the world you go, actually, this is the same pattern. We need to get to that point of human contact between a 95-year-old and a 65-year-old and a 16-year-old. says, you know what? We're all in the same human ship. If we don't go with it together, we're going to go with it down. <laughs> and it makes a lot of sense to, to open our hearts, our minds, our hands, our healing hands, and become to each other uh, the, the beauty of all our different cultures, yet the beauty of our singular culture. 
we're all people, we're all human in the end. Doctor, thank you so much. Where can people find your book? My book is on sale at Barnes and Noble, uh, all the bookstores, Amazon has it. Uh, you can even find it at Costco in it's some stores. Crossings, a doctor soldier story by John Kerstetter. It came out in September. It's available now and go get it and read it. All right, we're going to be plugging here the <laughs> the information. So do you have a Twitter, any social media where people can... I have uh, social media. If you just type in John Kerstetter, I'm on uh, Facebook, and I have uh, this uh, Instagram. My kids got started on Instagram. And so I'll post things, uh, you know, every week on the Facebook. You can either look up John Kerstetter or my, uh, my handle is Levi Elm, the name of my grandfather. Great. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this podcast. And remember, if you want to share information with the community please make sure you contact us follow us on twitter on their community board on facebook also go on pages and find us on their community board we're going to be putting information here from dr john uh, also you can listen to this podcast on soundcloud on their community board podcast also on itunes on their community board podcast and make sure you subscribe sub sub Right. Thank you. You got it. I need my coffee now. Uh, and make sure to contact us and stay tuned. All right. Thanks Have a good day. Bye bye. Last bye. time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see in the news? To get more culture.